you can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most important and intriguing pieces in the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. First, we look at the French President Emmanuel Macron's fight against Islamic extremism and question why so few Western leaders are supporting him. Next, we'll be asking what it was like to cover the US election. And to finish, we'll be discussing pubs in the era of pandemics. Has the lockdown revived the old-fashioned lock-in? In recent weeks, France has been subjected to a string of Islamist terror attacks. Emmanuel Macron has vowed to take on extremism, laying out his unequivocal support for the liberal principles of free speech and tolerance. In this week's cover piece, associate editor Douglas Murray asks why no other Western leaders will join the fight. He joins me now alongside Ed Hussein, who writes about the history of Islam and its role in developing Enlightenment values in this week's magazine. Douglas, can you start by outlining the recent events that have led to President Macron taking such a strong stance against radical Islam? Yes, um, a lot of uh, listeners may have missed some of the details of this because of the extraordinary wealth of events that have occurred in recent weeks. But at the beginning of October, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, gave a very important speech about the nature of the French state, of secularism, the challenge that Islamic extremism, separatism poses to France, He drew a very clear line as to what he saw was the problem. And he got a certain amount of criticism for it, as well as a certain amount of praise. In the days afterwards, the contention that some of his critics had made, that there was no problem, that he was addressing a false issue, was pushed back against in the most brutal and bloody way by the murder of the French schoolteacher, Mr. Paty, by an 18-year-old Chechen Muslim using a meat cleaver. In the days after that, the pertinence of the president's remarks became even more obvious than they already were. And nevertheless, across certain parts of the international community, there was actually a pushback against Mr. Macron, principally from the Turkish president, Mr. Erdogan, but also in the following days from the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. And they seemed to blame Mr. Macron for the problem, rather than the person who had done the killing. They said that there was a problem of, of over-assertive French secularism, effectively. In the days after that, there were, of course, then another set of killings on this occasion, carried out by a man who had recently arrived from Tunisia through the Italian island of Lampedusa, who killed three worshippers as they were exiting the service of worship at a church in Nice. What I say in the piece that's, that's striking about this is that, of course, this isn't new to France. It's tragically something which in its scope, from attacking somebody for asserting French secularism all the way to people leaving church after worship, is something that sadly France has been through for some years now. What's interesting is the silence of France's friends. The fact that so few world leaders have actually come to Mr Macron's aid. And that, as I say in the piece, is the really striking thing that's going on in this episode, which sadly otherwise is a repetition of something we've seen many times already. Ed, you've also written for the magazine this week, and you, you point out that Macron seems to be preparing for an intellectual battle against Islamism. 
I mean, what exactly is he doing and how do you see that playing out? Well, well Lara, President Macron was was bold and right on, on, the, on the grounds that Douglas correctly identifies. But there's been a real reluctance across the West to assert what it is to be Western in the modern world. And my piece draws on President Macron's focus on Muslim thinkers, Muslim philosophers in particular, who were dependent on Aristotelian thought. Now, all of this may sound rather academic, but it, but it's not. The point is that this is a battle of ideas, that modern Muslims living in the West need to set an example of how to be both modernized and westernized for the sake of peace here in the West, but also in the Muslim world. And had that battle of ideas been fought, say, in the 70s, then we would not have the Salman Rushdie-style desire to kill a, a British author under a fatwa from an Iranian, or the 1990s, where we saw the rise of Islamist extremism here in the UK and across Europe, and then what we saw subsequently from 9-11 onwards. We constantly find ourselves on the back foot, both as you know, moderate liberal Muslims and as the, the, the wider West, because this battle of ideas has not been addressed. So what I try to do in the piece is to allude to what the key ideas are President Macron talked about Ibn Khaldun and, and Averroes in France. There was a famous group of people in the medieval period known as Latin Averroists that tried to merge the secular and the sacred and say both are paths to, to truth. Now, those, those, those discussions are important, and it's great that The Spectator has given space to those arguments, and President Macron identified that issue. But you know, at this point, it's worth remembering the great English philosopher Roger Scruton, who used to always talk of the West culturally repudiating its own past, and as a result, not having the backbone, the stamina, the confidence to stand up for what it means to be Western. The moment that happens, based on Enlightenment values in the way in which President Macron and others have identified, what you then see is Muslims are forced to either calibrate behaviour or to decide whether you know you stay in the West, or, or to make a decision as to what it means to be Western and Muslim at the same time. And on one last point, if I may, Douglas talked about this in his piece when he says, what, if anything, can be done about the fact if, if Muslims, A, understand Enlightenment values, and then B, decide that they don't want to embrace them? My point is we're not there at point B yet. Douglas may think we are. My point is that we haven't made a strong, robust, direct, confident assertion, explanation, advocacy, defense of what the West stands for today. And as a result, you see Islamists and others appearing in the void and forcing civilization on the back foot. I mean, I don't entirely agree that, that, that Western civilization is on the back foot, as it were. I mean, these the still, I'm not, of course, by any means minimizing these attacks, but these are still relatively small scale attacks recently. They don't fundamentally challenge French secularism. They certainly don't challenge the French state. What they do is cause and prod at these elemental feelings of unease. That question I raise, which Ed, Ed just pointed to, does remain to me the pertinent one, which is what do you do if people are in your society but do, in whatever percentages or whatever numbers, say, I do understand your worldview, but I simply don't share it and don't wish to share it. This, this remains the pregnant and deep question for Europe. But as, as for the thing that, that, that is being prodded at, what's fascinating about it is, Ed's right, that there is a a complex question going on in the West, which in a way might explain the silence of some of Monsieur Macron's friends, which is that France has an exceptionally bold and deep foundation in one element of the West, 
which is that Enlightenment secular tradition. It is not, of course, the entire West or the entire Western tradition, but it is a French tradition which the French decided to dig deep down on. Of course, other countries, including our own, Great Britain, take a slightly different view. There is an element of secularism and, and of the belief in that and pinning one's hopes to the Enlightenment values. But there are also, as, as Ed knows, other traditions within that, including a Burkean conservative tradition and traditions which depend on the accruing over time of societal and cultural norms. So in a way, what I think other Western countries are finding difficult is rallying to the defence of the state that most clearly relies on the first of those values. And that's why we see strange things like the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, really doing a sort of on the one hand, on the other hand-ism about France. Because he clearly doesn't feel, and perhaps many Canadians don't feel, a complete affinity to that French secular ideal. And I think one of the things that the Islamist attacks are prodding at is this this unanswered question, perhaps an unanswerable question in the West, of exactly which pillars of our own traditions we wish to fight for and defend and stand on the most. Douglas mentioned earlier the lack of support that Macron has received from other Western leaders. Do you think Western leaders in general are quite nervous of standing up to Islamism? There is the nervousness, there is the fear of being seen to be Islamophobic. There is also the the latent scare of in the post Black Lives Matter world of being cast as racist. There is also the distraction with the US elections at this particular juncture. But but all of that said, there is a lack of confidence and backbone to stand up and say freedom of expression is a non-negotiable right, be it in Canada, the United States of America, or here in Britain, or, or further afield in Europe, we are not going back to the days of blasphemy laws. Muslims can only thrive in the West because theolo- theologically, creedly, Muslims are blasphemers. Now, we don't believe that Christ is the Son of God, and yet Muslims are allowed to constantly say that that's blasphemy, that's heresy, and yet that's allowed. The, the, the flip side to that freedom is others are then allowed to offend whatever Muslims consider to be sacred. It doesn't follow then that Muslims demand blasphemy laws from Muslim governments, i.e. Turkey, Pakistan and elsewhere, nor does it follow that however small or however large, Muslims then take up arms against magazines, attack school teachers, police stations and other arms of state. That, that's the, the issue at risk. And, and Douglas is right that there is a, there, there, there is a gradation of how much you know, we highlight laicity, which some argue is hostile to religion. You know, there's, a, there's a healthy debate in France that talks about it being neutral to religion, especially to its relationship with Catholicism, and now having a different conversation with Islam. But, but the English-speaking world, you know, there, there is a different tradition of accommodating religion, but not, you know, as per U.S. constitutional amendments, not imposing religion onto the public domain from the state. Now, all of those debates are valid and important and part of part of the the, the journey of progress. But what's important is there is no compromise on the importance of satire. There is no compromise on the importance of the Greek tradition of theatre. There's no compromise on the notion that, yes, occasionally religious figures, philosophical figures and others will be mocked at, they will be insulted, and Muslims and others need to accept the fact that that's the way pluralism and the liberal space functions in the modern world. Take that away and we undo centuries of progress and we're ungrateful 
for the inheritance that we've received and we disregard the, the, the lives of millions who've died over the centuries for these very freedoms that we, we, we benefit from in our lives today. Douglas, one of the interesting points in your piece is that you point out that Macron has now said that Europe must rethink the Schengen arrangements and tighten its external borders, which I suppose seems quite a surprising thing to be hearing the French president saying. Do you think he's likely to receive support from other European leaders on this? It's both surprising and unsurprising, of course, because Macron, like previous French leaders, has been in this area before, partly because he'd been bounced into it by appalling events continuously happening in his own country, and partly because of the nature of a simple political reality that is occurring in Europe. At the moment, the German Chancellor is battling, among others, with the Austrian Chancellor to try to force the Austrians to take quotas of migrants that, uh, of course, the German Chancellor primarily was responsible for encouraging into the continent several years ago. What's, what's interesting is that Monsieur Macron is not just doing talk, however. We ran a piece in the magazine a number of weeks ago by Ayan Hersiali, lukewarmly welcoming the first Macron speech in October. But of course, then she thought, and I think I would have thought as well at the time, that what we were doing was simply hearing more rhetoric from the French president. Yet, as you say, there are now actions as well. He has said that he will take to the European Council meeting in December the proposal to strengthen the external border force in Europe, as well as rethinking the free movement within the Schengen areas, both of which, have, as I've said for many years, absolutely vital to getting on top of the simple question of, of, of who is here. But the interesting thing as well is that Macron has not just stopped at that. A number of radical and radical-linked organisations in France have now found themselves either closed or having bank accounts closed. There's a number of other practical steps that the president has, has taken. And, and this, this is slightly new. This is, I would say, in a, in a good direction. He will find support in the European Council in December from a, a large number of his allies. However, as long as Chancellor Merkel remains completely opposed to it. As long as Merkel has a totally different agenda, this is going to continue to be an uphill battle, even for the president of France. Uh, just finally, in Douglas's piece, he says that we like to say, je suis Charlie, and then we forget about it. But in this case, it does seem as if as though Macron is perhaps more serious. How do you think we can judge his success? I think we judge his success by the, the conversations that are not in the press. And in addition to all the points Douglas rightly makes about the reforms inside the European Council and, and, and the border forces, but also you know, Macron setting up an institution in France to, to advance an enlightened Islam that's in keeping and, and supportive of Western enlightenment secular values. What's really interesting is, is the stuff behind the scenes going on between President Macron and several leaders from Muslim-majority countries, particularly in the Arabian Gulf. Now, Douglas has, over the years, been very brave and principled in advancing this argument. What we're seeing almost 10 years on now is you know, we shouldn't dismiss these these important interventions. So, yes, we say just we, Charlie. And I don't think we forget because it does get picked up in Abu Dhabi and in Riyadh and in Bahrain and in Cairo. And yes, they tussle with the difficult issue of you know some elements of their population being stuck in a you know in a in a, in a mindset that's much more suited to the pre-enlightenment world than where many of the political leaders are but slowly we are seeing 
Muslim governments and allies coming on board. And uh, you know, if any of your listeners are remotely sceptical of that, I point them to the uh, Abrahamic Accords, where the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, and others are openly joining forces with Israel, which is a sign of containing and trying to suffocate anti-Semitism, a form of hatred. Now, all of those forces of anti-Semitism, desiring blasphemy laws, they're all connected in the Islamist mindset as something that represents modernity in the West. And we have allies in the world, especially in the Muslim world, that are pro-West. And I think that's the good news, and I think that's what's going to change. And ultimately, what's important is for the West to hold its nerve and not uh, buckle under pressure of, of the woke narrative on campuses that feeds the media and the political class subsequently, but hold its nerve from the you know the, the John Locke, Berkey and Voltairean tradition to where we are today. And what we'll see over time is more and more Muslim nations, Muslim leaders, Muslim thought leaders coming across to you know where modernity is. And I, I end by saying this, if I may, that the West's claim to modernity is not unique. We shouldn't feel ashamed because much of what the modern West is has a lot to do with, with the Jewish, Greek, Arab, Muslim and other traditions. It's, it's a continuity of that, of that human mind, of the Aristotelian tradition. And we shouldn't feel that somehow by, by being Western we are offending Muslims. On the contrary, the West is the only part of the world where someone can embrace Western values and become a Westerner, but the key is to embrace the values. I mean, I could live in China for 500 years and would not become Chinese, but you could be in England for 10, 15, 20 years, embrace the meaning of what it means to be, to be modernized in this world and find a home and find belonging. That must not be compromised. That must not be threatened. And what the jihadists and others are trying to do is bring about this clash of civilizations that breaks the West for what it is fundamentally, and we must not allow that to happen. Douglas Ned, thank you very much. Next, in this week's issue, Freddie Gray writes about life on the road covering a truly unique American election. He joins me now alongside Amber Athey, the Washington editor of The Spectator's US edition. Fred, you've recently returned from America and have written about the time in your diary this week. How did it compare to covering the election four years ago? I'd say it was just as interesting, if a lot less fun, obviously because of the pandemic, in that America is not a place that really suits lockdowns or being shut down or masks and things like that. So it was a bit sad kind of going around some parts of America and seeing everything sort of so quiet. But I think it also made the election a lot more difficult to read because you obviously had one side, as it were, taking COVID a lot more seriously. And it was hard to tell whether there was any enthusiasm at all for Biden or whether it was all just sort of muted because of the crisis. Amber, where were you covering the election from? I'm just outside of Washington, D.C. in Arlington, Virginia. So obviously very heavy Biden country here. Northern Virginia is pretty much the one part of Virginia that causes the state to go blue because it is so heavily Democratic. So when I drive around my neighborhood, it's Biden sign after Biden sign. And if you have a rare Trump sign, it usually gets torn down within a couple of days. We, we did go and see Amber's parents, though, with our colleague Matt McDonald in Maryland. That was proper Trump country. Yes. My parents are from Frederick, Maryland, which is more of a red part of what is a pretty blue state. And we saw tons of Trump signs on the way in and stopped at a local diner. And it was, it's very much what you would expect from sort of a middle America Trump supporting community. Fred, you, you went to one of Trump's rallies. What, what was that like? It was great. I mean, I always like going to Trump rallies because they're just really interesting. And I, I love the people there. They're really funny. Like the deplorables are the best people on earth, I think. They're very entertaining. They don't take themselves seriously. 
they don't really take Trump that seriously either. That's one of the things that people don't really understand, um, even though obviously they do love him at the same time. But I had a funny incident. It was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I had a funny thing of I couldn't see over the crowd. So I stood up on this chair to see over the crowd. And then Trump did his um, pointing at the media bit where I was and saying, look at the fake news media, etc." And because I was standing at the front, it felt like there was about 10,000 people booing me. And I found that strangely exhilarating. <laughs> <laughs> and Amber, where are we at now? I mean, has Trump conceded? Does he still think he, he maybe has a chance at sort of getting it back? Trump has not conceded. In fact, I would say he's actually doubled down even harder on the fact that he believes he won the election. The Trump campaign has filed dozens of lawsuits across the country, mainly in swing states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin and Michigan and Georgia all alleging that dead people voted or people voted out of state or that there were glitches that caused votes to illegally go for Biden or that election officials were ballot carrying, et cetera, et cetera. So even actually the, the White House has refused to start the transition process, which would get, do things like give Biden access to national security information. And they're pretty much proceeding as if the election is not over. Of course, the media has called it for Biden, but the election results haven't been certified. So until all of their lawsuits are completed, until the election is certified, I imagine things are going to continue this way. Freddie, do you think that means Trump is going to be sort of forcibly removed? What's going to happen in January? I don't know. There's long been this democratic fantasy that sort of, you know, the military will have to go in and he'll have to be sort of dragged out, kicking and screaming. I think that's sort of kind of hot air, really. But it is a bit odd and it is possible that given the huge psychological pressure Trump has been under, I mean, he could just have snapped. I don't think it's just sort of never Trump, anti-Trump talk to suggest he is incapable of accepting the result. It is possible that with his intensely positive, you're always winning if you think you're winning mindset, he might be unable to re- accept the result. But in that case, I don't know what happens. And I, and I can't quite picture the military having to go in. But it may be a lot of the people around him will have to turn on him or something like that. That may, that may happen. Or... He may just be exhausting all the possible processes for recounts. And once that's done, unless he discovers some amazingly huge amount of electoral fraud and can prove it, which is very unlikely, I think he will probably just slink off to Florida. (laughs) Off to play golf. I mean, one of the things that Freddie mentioned in his diary and also Douglas Murray mentioned in a previous piece was that parts of America were being boarded up because there was this expectation there was going to be a huge amount of civil unrest. I mean, has there been any civil unrest? And and were people sort of unnecessarily worrying? Well, people were worried because if Trump had handily won re-election, there's a contingent of Biden supporters, although they don't really love Biden, they're more progressive than Biden, like Antifa and Black Bloc that have been behind the riots that have been occurring in the U.S. since the start of the summer when George Floyd was killed at the hands of Derek Chauvin. And so the boarding up was primarily in case of that outcome. I don't think any honest observer really expected that Trump supporters were going to riot if Biden won the election. And so far, the evidence has borne that out. Trump supporters have had several small protests that have been peaceful in trying to protest election fraud. And there's another one set for the National Mall in Washington, D.C. this Saturday called the Million MAGA March. And as far as I can tell, the shops have gone back to normal. They've unboarded their windows and they're not expecting major violence from that unless it's due to outside groups coming in and causing skirmishes. The only thing I did see after the election downtown in D.C. was 
the people that you would normally expect to riot in the all black clothing and the bandanas and, and the hats were actually celebrating and they had McPherson Square all set up for election results with a projector playing CNN and they had music playing and most of them were just dancing in the streets. So there were parts of the city that were shut down, but for the opposite reason that you would expect. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that march, because I, I suspect, I don't know what you're hearing, Amber, but I suspect it's going to be pretty big and they'll, they'll get the million that they're looking for. And I wonder how it will be covered in the media, because you don't have to be a Trumpist to realise that there is a massive, massive bias against Trump and his supporters in the media. So will they just pretend that it's not happening? Will they just not cover it? Will they try and portray it as a sort of riot when maybe it will turn into a riot, but it probably won't be? I'll be very interested to see the coverage of that. Yeah, and so far the media coverage that I've seen has been calling this a Proud Boys rally, when really it seems to me like it's supposed to be sort of a grassroots Trump supporter rally, and they're already trying to make this about white nationalists and white supremacists and extremist groups, because still the media cannot imagine that this many normal people could possibly support the president. The Proud Boys are this amazing sort of fiction in the media, I think. They don't, they're not really a very significant or interesting group, really. And yet they seem to dominate a lot of media attention. They came up in the presidential debates as well. Fred, you, in your diary, you mentioned having a drink with Nigel Farage. What kind of mood was he in? It was interesting to see Farage in, in DC because I think he's there as a journalist. He's doing his um, fortune and fame newsletter, which I think is going very, very well. And he was, he was a bit sombre on the night I saw him because obviously he wanted Trump to win a lot and he'd been campaigning with him. But it was interesting to see him sort of in the Trump Hotel, which he called his cathedral, because it's sort of his spiritual home now, I think. And I wonder if, obviously, he's just launched a political party in Britain, but uh, I wonder if destiny will eventually take him to America to be with his Donald. And finally, I'm just going to ask you both, are you going to miss Trump? If he does eventually go? I definitely will miss Trump. I think he's wildly entertaining, regardless of whether you hate or love the guy. He has made journalism so just unendously interesting. And I think, you know, a lot of journalists and people in the media say that they're excited to have a break, which is kind of funny because you shouldn't really be having a break just based on who's in office or whether or not you agree with their politics. But I think they also are going to miss just how much was going on during the Trump administration. He was really one of the best things that ever happened to a lot of these dying media outlets. And I think they're going to miss him when he's gone. I'm certainly going to miss him when he's gone. He really changed the game of politics and media in a way that I don't think we fully understand yet. I agree with that. I'm almost sort of welling up thinking about uh, (laughs) Because it's been, yeah, the last four or five years, sort of writing a, a lot about Trump have been just completely fascinating and it's just the it's the greatest story that's ever happened I remember Michael Wolf writing a piece very early on way before he wrote Fire and Fury the book about Trump saying you know all the journalists who are getting so upset about this are missing the fact this is the greatest story that's ever happened and it and it pretty much (laughs) pretty much is I think and Biden is going to be interesting in lots of different ways but it won't have that same crazy factor although I suspect a lot of my family and my friends and stuff are probably quite grateful because and readers perhaps because I I know I've become a Trump bore so uh, I can stop being a Trump bore. Thank you Freddie and thank you Amber. And finally the local pub is a staple of British culture one that has been heavily restricted thanks to the pandemic but as John Sturgis writes in this week's magazine 
Avoiding restrictions on drinking is another time-honoured British tradition. John joins me now, along with The Spectator contributor, Mark Mason. John, in your piece this week, you look at how pubs have responded to lockdown and you make the point that pubs have always been good at bending the rules. Do you think this spirit has lived on in recent months? Very much so. I've been really encouraged and heartened by how pubs have responded. They've been very adaptive. You know, as soon as, the, as, soon as it was apparent that you could drink outdoors, the gardens suddenly appeared. Things that hadn't hitherto appeared to be beer gardens became them. Heaters appeared from nowhere and so on, and suddenly we were all drinking outside. Prior to that, when you weren't allowed to drink at all, the takeout pint suddenly started sneaking into view. And before you knew it, I, there were there were days this summer when there were hundreds of people sitting in parks and they all had plastic pint glasses in their hands and it was the pub had gone al fresco and it was all very pleasing that the pubs were adapting in this way. Mark, how have the pubs in your area responded to lockdown? Uh, a few of them are doing the same thing. The one in my village is opening uh, tonight, as we record. It's doing its takeaway pizzas. I think it's doing takeaway pints as well. And I love, like John, a brilliant piece, John. I just love the spirit of just determination to get around these stupid rules. It's always been there. There used to be a pub that was on the border of England and Wales. The border ran right through the middle of the pub so that one of its bars was in England and the other two were in Wales. And the magistrates had different rules on Sunday. So on a Sunday, you could drink in the English bar, but not in the Welsh one. So this sort of stupidity has always been around. And I love the fact that where everything's been redefined and, as you said, John, people sitting in the parks and something that you'd never thought was a beer garden is now a beer garden. It's wonderful. It's people fighting back against this lunacy. And, and do you think things are going to stay the same or do you think we'll ever just go back to how things were before? What, in terms of licensing laws? Well, just, yeah, I, mean, I mean, these changes that we've seen happen, do you think they're going to stay or do you think we're going to go back to... Oh, God, no. I mean, they're not even, they're not even staying this time round. <laughs> people aren't even, you know, people's willingness to obey the rules in lockdown too is so much less than the first time round. And I think people are just gradually waking up from this hysteria and saying we're not going to stand for this anymore. And businesses, in this case pubs, but all sorts of businesses, first time round, everyone was a bit freaked. Everyone was a bit scared. This was something so new. And now they've realised, a lot of people, just how much hysteria there is. And they're going, look, we're not going to stand for it this time round. You know, we're trying to run a business here. This is not just someone wanting to have a cheeky pint. This isn't about being lads down the pub. This is about businesses and jobs and all the people that work in the pubs and all the people that supply the pubs. And people, I'm very glad to say, just aren't going to stand for it. And John, do you think I mean, pubs have obviously been a sort of long-standing symbol of our liberty? Do you think people are starting to kind of reclaim them as places where... You know, they can kind of make make the point that Mark's making that this is all getting a bit hysterical. Absolutely, I think that there's a, a sort of long and noble history of pubs being ever so slightly on the edge of things, nefarious. They grew up in a kind of informal way, and they've always had that. They've they've always been at odds with the authorities. There's been sort of you know battlegrounds over, principally licensing laws, timings, and so on. The classic example, of course, is is last orders and. And the response to that was the traditional lock-in. I, I hope you've enjoyed one in your time. They're, they're a diminishing thing now as licensing <laughs> laws are liberalised and the, the old, you know, the old Sunday afternoon closures and the, the formal 11 o'clock ringing of the bell, that's all kind of faded away. It does still exist partially, but in, in, in my younger drinking days, it, it was you always felt like you'd won the lottery if you were in a pub or if you heard in advance about a lock-in that was coming in, you could get down there. Oh, you're, abs- you're absolutely right, John. The, the phrase lock-in is one of the most exciting phrases in the English language. <laughs> there was a, a Smith & Jones sketch in the 80s. Griff jones was the guy sitting in the pub nursing a little half a pint on his own. And Mel Smith was the landlord. And Mel Smith comes up to him and goes, uh, we're having a bit of a, you know, lowers his voice and kneels down next to 
Griff Reese Jones, he says, we're having a lock-in for the regulars later, so uh, drink up and piss off. Won't <laughs> you? <laughs> you know, it's one of those staples of, of that sort of two Ronnie Smith and Jones era. And it's you're right, it's very disappointing, John, actually, that as the licensing hours get pushed back, you can't break the rules so easily. It's very disappointing. But do you think, I mean, John makes the point in his piece that the opposite of... Uh lock-in is locked down. Do you think people are starting to have kind of illicit gatherings in pubs or elsewhere, particularly in the second lockdown? Oh, absolutely. They were even in the first one. I mean, the first one went on for three months or whatever it was. And even in that first one, you, you soon worked out which among your neighbours and friends were the sensible ones who realised this was absolute lunacy. And But then there were other the people who went the other way and would be scared to walk within six feet of you, even if it was out in an open field and all that sort of nonsense. So, yeah, and especially second time round, it's a lot harder this time round for the government to enforce it because it's in the winter. In April, May, June, when it was people were out walking around in the nice sunshine, you got your social contact that way. This time it's going to be harder, and yeah, absolutely, people are going to socialise, and so they should. And do you think we've we've sort of needed booze more than ever in the past few months? <laughs> that sounded like a very personal question there, Lara. <laughs> <laughs> I know I have. <laughs> I, I, I think John's absolutely right. We have The Brits have always needed lots of booze all the time, and lockdown is just the latest example of that. A friend of mine told me that he'd come across an instance of click and collect pints in the city. That you know, <laughs> I thought that was a fabulous adaptation. They're, they're everywhere. These these little quirky takes on on you know the officialdom and the, the official response and so on. And I love I love the way that pubs are uh, trying to keep going in difficult circumstances. I don't think the weather is particularly advantageous for alfresco drinking now. I mean, we've had a mild autumn, but it, it, it's not great. Even with a paraffin heater on, it's not. Not the greatest. Yeah, I mean, is not the case that people have always quite enjoyed drinking outside? I mean, even in a kind of January, you'll see people standing outside a pub. It has got a park bench connotation now for us going drinking, hasn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately. That's true. But they are, now and people are literally going to the pub and then taking their pint outside and sitting on a park bench. So it kind of has come to that. That's where we are. <laughs> and just finally, I'm going to ask you both where you'll be going for your first drink once the second lockdown is lifted. That could be a self-incriminating question, Laura, because it supposes that we haven't already had our first drink. (laughs) (laughs) A first Uh, official drink. Do you know what? Oh, the first one where it's all properly, pubs are back to normal. And, well, of course, inevitably, the first night is going to be rammed and you'll struggle to get into a pub unless you're there at a minute past whatever the opening time is. But, yeah, I mean, the one in my village, and it's at the centre of village life. And a lot of big cities like London, you know, there are famously lots of little villages around. There'll be a pub near you, John, in your part of London. There'll be a pub near you, Laura, in your part of London. That that I think the, the local one that you spend most of the time in, it'll be like seeing, be like seeing your family again. It'll be so important. John, where will you be heading? I should go into the centre of town and go to one of the proper old boozers. I, I mentioned in the piece the Coach and Horse in Soho, which I'm sure a lot of people will know. I've been drinking there for th- not continuously. I've been drinking there for 35 <laughs> years or something, and I'm deeply fond of it. And it was the penultimate place I drank in before we were banned from drinking for a month in pubs and I just was reminded of how fond I am of it it was cozy it was nice everyone was well behaved it was well run it's just a terrific little pub right in the heart of London and I love it dearly so yeah that'll be my first one I think thank you John and Mark and that's everything this week as ever if you pick up this week's issue you can read everything that we've talked about and plenty more we've got Andrew Sullivan on the enduring legacy of Trumpism Charles Moore on his newfound life in the House of Lords and Simon Barnes on the history of mink. And if you'd like to be in with a chance to win a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, just fill out our short podcast survey online. We'd love to hear what you think about our shows. 
visit spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast survey. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.